Well, good morning. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Good to see you guys here. Thanks for joining us this morning. And those online, thank you for joining us. Kevin and Catherine, thank you for leading us here. And Ben, thank you too for what you've done. Um, you're catching us in part two of a series called All I Need. And as a basketball coach, I'm assistant basketball coach at Peckway Valley, um, some news from the NBA got my attention a couple weeks ago. The NBA decided to suspend a player for some action that was a little strong. Apparently, he punched someone in the face in the game, and evidently, you're not allowed to do that in the NBA. Um, the problem was for him that um, that followed an event a couple weeks prior where he put someone in a headlock in the middle of a game. That also, evidently, you're not allowed to do, apparently, which also came on the heels of last season when he sucker punched his teammate in practice, and then that didn't go so well either. So the NBA made an interesting decision. This is why it caught my attention, that they suspended him indefinitely. They normally will give a one, three, five, ten game suspension and give a limit right away. This time they didn't. And the reason they didn't is probably because you know why, because they knew something is wrong inside this guy. He needs to get himself right. And we don't know how long this is going to take, but it would be a false assumption to say in 10 games, you'll be fine. There's something going on inside you, and you need to get it right. We need to give you the time to do that. Now, it's easy for me to sit to the side and, and judge him for that and say, well, Good thing I'm not him, right? I mean, I don't punch people in the face normally. I don't normally put people in headlocks unless we're joking around in the locker room sometimes. But I, I don't normally act out like that, right? And it's easy for me to feel a little bit distant and removed from him. But if I drill down a little bit, it's also easy for me to find a relationship with him, a connection to him, and realize, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes in traffic, when people cut me off, I don't always think pleasant thoughts in my mind toward them. Anyone have that experience? Just yesterday, someone completely turned right in front of me, and I laid on the horn just to let them know that I was there, just being polite, you know, letting them know I'm here, so they know, you know, just out of the kindness of my heart. You know, if you are um, <clears throat> ever come to my house and you want to see it, I'll show you. When we walk down my steps to my basement, you'll see a little indentation on my wall. It's about the level of where my fist might hit a wall, should I ever be so frustrated to do that, because about a decade ago, and in parenting my kids, there was a time when I was so frustrated <clears throat> that on my, I needed to just get out of that space. And I went down, I just, out of frustration, hit the wall, the side of the drywall, with the side of my hand. And I still see it when I go down there, reminded of the time when, when I, I lost my cool, like my, the inside of me, right, came out. And, uh, you know, it's not just anger of the, the stuff that I'm talking about today that's inside of us that can come out, whether it's people cutting you off in traffic or kind of losing it, you know, that way. It's just all of the ways that the things inside of us come out. You ever be in, in, in a relationship with someone, uh, whether it's a boss or someone you love, and you're trying to avoid the personal or intimate conversations because you don't really want to have that talk? You ever try to, try to do that and you're doing all kinds of things to avoid that because there's something inside of you that isn't ready for that yet? You ever go to the doctor and they're like, can I be honest with you? The reason that you're sick Everything, all your vitals look good, your blood count looks good, but the reason that I think you're sick is because you're just stressed. It's just stress. You're working yourself to death. In other words, what I, I think that I've found over time is that the inside of us, the inside of us is trying to, in some ways, until we get ourselves right on the inside, we can't be right on the outside, if I could put it that way, right? And so what I want to talk about this morning in the passage that we're in is this general principle about how God sees the inside of us. And, and I would make the case, and here's kind of where I kind of want to go this morning, that God cares about us getting right before he cares about us doing right. 
He cares about us getting right before doing right. And the getting right that I want to talk about this morning has to do with the inside. The word we're going to talk about this morning is the soul, the piece of us that comes out in those moments when people cut us off in traffic, those moments when we get angry, those moments when we want to avoid intimacy, those moments when we're trying to work ourselves too hard because there's something in us, almost a silent voice or vision that drives us to do things. And God cares more about us getting right than about doing right. Now, to make that case, I want to invite you to the psalm that we're in, um, Psalm 23. It's the, the middle of your Bible, and I hope we all enjoy the snow outside. I know we're looking at it, and let's just take a moment to enjoy that. That's beautiful and fun. Um, so that's great. If you like snow, if you don't, then we'll close the curtains around you and, and be good to go. But Psalm 23, you'll find it in the middle of your Bible. Um, and there's a Bible in the chair near you. If you don't own one, be glad to have you take that home with you. And many of you know this Psalm. Some of you had to memorize it when you were little. And, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, is where we were last week. And this week, we're just going to look at a couple verses together. I'm going to read them right now, verses 2 into verse 3. Going from that idea that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, David goes on to write, he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. All right, that's kind of the extent of where I'd like to go this morning. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a little dry throat this morning, but for those who know um, your Bible or have a history in the church, um, you may have heard before that the way that um, Hebrew poetry works, and this is Hebrew poetry that you're reading, the way Hebrew poetry works is primarily through a, a literary thing called uh, parallelism. So in the Hebrew, they often will parallel their um, stanzas or lines to complete an idea. So I'm going to try to illustrate it this way. I'm going to really let the text teach us this morning, like we typically do, but especially maybe a little bit more this morning. So here's verse 2 to 3a up here, and just read it in your Bible. But, but what happens is the first line, he makes us lie down in green pastures, actually parallels the second line, he leads me beside quiet waters, in both thought and also in um, grammar. All right, so I'm going to put it in color code here. So here's the first phrase of the first line. He makes me lie down, parallels the second line of he leads me. You'll see that there's both a subject and verb and an object. God is the one who is the he. He is making me lie down. Me is the, the object. I'm receiving the action of the one who's doing the action. God is the one who's making me lie down. God is the one who's leading me. Those are parallel thoughts. They're not meant to be separate. They're meant to complete a bigger picture. He makes me lie down and he leads me. The second word in both stanzas also parallels each other. This is a, a preposition. It gives us a sense of space. Where is this happening? We see, well, he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside quiet waters. And you're already ahead of me seeing that the last two words of each stanza also parallel each other. So he makes me lie down in green pastures, and then he leads me beside quiet waters. Okay, so you'll see here that this is how this is paralleled. And what the psalmist is trying to do is not give us two distinct thoughts, but give us a, a third separate thought that comes out of this. So if all we had were these two lines, what we might rightly do as a reader is think what one idea, what one big idea is this psalmist trying to communicate with these two related ideas? 
So it's not just that he makes me lie down or he leads me. It's like, what do those lead to? What do they teach me? Sometimes in Hebrew poetry, there's opposites that, you know, when the sun rises and when the sun sets. So they, you know, picture the, the entire day of God's mercy and his love. In this case, you would have to ask the question, if all I have is he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside quiet waters, what is that kind of third or separate or big idea that the psalmist is trying to communicate? Every now and then in Hebrew poetry, and this is one of those times, the psalmist gives us his big idea as a third line that is not parallel, but a conclusion to the parallel thought. And that is sitting right in front of us, right here. Here's what the psalmist is trying to say. He refreshes my soul. That is his point. Now, how does he refresh my soul? How does he refresh my soul? First two lines. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. But his main idea in all of this is that third line that follows the parallel lines that he refreshes my soul. Now, again, these words are very important. Let's look at those. God, again, is the one who is the subject or the one doing the action of the refreshing. He, he is refreshing. He is refreshing. This word for refresh also means restore. And so if you think of the word restore in our English language, it means exactly what you think it is. If you ever watched, uh, is it uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines? Is that who those are? People who do the, is it house flipping? Obviously, I watch them a lot, right? This is a bad illustration. I should know what I'm talking about when I do that. So they're restoring homes, I, I think, um, and flipping them, making them look better, whatever. Anyway, bad illustration, kind of. But Taking what, taking what is kind of pseudo-broken or fallen apart and making it better, it's a restoration project. So we have houses that are restored. You have antiques. Some of you watched this at the Antique Roadshow or, I don't know, um, Pickers or something like that. Uh, is that right? What is it? Yeah? Okay, some don't want to admit that you watch it. I don't know what it is. Whenever I hear that, I think of some of it. Anyway. There's antiques, right? There's old antiques, and people have these old antiques, and then they clean them up, and they're worth a million dollars, and it's like a matchbox car, right? Because all of a sudden, it's really valuable, but it's cleaned up, it's restored. The restoration idea is not just with objects, but it's also with people. If you ever had a kid, and the kid did something wrong, and they realize it, and they're a kid who's really kind of leaning into shame or guilt, and they already feel horrible that they took the extra cookie, and you don't even have to discipline them. You just look at them, and they melt right? And then, and then, like, you have a time of restoration. That is this idea. It's repairing what's broken. It's restoring to original purpose or beauty. It's the whole picture. And so this assumes, if this is what this word means, this refreshing or restoring, what he's picturing is that my soul, my soul needs restoration. My soul is broken. My soul needs a renewal to how it was designed to be. So what is my soul? I mean, that's an important question. So in the Old Testament, at the general level, it means my life, right? Uh, in Exodus, I think, 15, people are counted as souls. Even in our um, English now, when someone is stuck on the ocean and they're about to go down with their ship, they send out a signal, and it's called a what? S-O-S, 
Good. Some of you will live if you're on the ocean. Some will not because you don't know what out to send. All right, SOS, and I wasn't clear in bringing that out, but SOS means save our soul. Thank you. Great job. We're doing really well with audience participation this morning. Uh, thank you for playing along. Save our soul. Why? Why? Because, because it, you're essentially saying that my life, my very life is at stake right now. And so I need you to, to save it, right? Now, that on the one hand like, means something, but when I drill down further into soul in, in learning about this, there's some more helpful things that really brought this home to me. Okay? So in the Old Testament, the soul represents my very life, but if I drill further down into it, it goes, let me put it this way on the screen. In the Old Testament, in a more narrow sense, knowledge and understanding, thought, love, and memory all originate in the soul. Think with me about this for a minute. In the Old Testament, knowledge and understanding, what you know and understand about how the world works, what you think, what you think could be how you perceive your future or vision, how you love or whom you love, and your memory all originate in the soul. Now, if that's true, if the soul becomes like the, the self or your ego or your personality or that part of you, then Again, to restore it assumes it's broken. So if this is broken, think about this with me. Are any of these parts of you, have any of these parts of you been broken? Do you have any memories of regret? Do you have any memories of a father, of a mother, of a sister, of a brother, of a pastor, of a teacher, of a loved one that has deeply impacted you? Do you have a memory of when you have failed to even live up to your own standards and you still live in the long shadow of that regret? That is a part of your soul. Have you ever had love been spurned? Have you ever been the one to betray someone else? Have you ever had a close friend betray you? This marks us, doesn't it? Man, this changes us. It makes it hard to love again. What does that impact in us? It impacts our soul. Have you ever had a, an understanding or a thought of how the world should work if you do the right things and function the right way and get up early and go to work and be industrious and be studious in school and things should line up the way that they line up and then they really don't. You're not given the opportunity. You're looked over for the promotion. You are fired from the job for no reason. Your boss simply doesn't like you. The world isn't working the way you thought it should and it leaves an impression on you. Where does that impression sit in you? It sits, according to the Old Testament word, it sits in your soul. It sits in that part of us that's in the, quote-unquote, inside, but it is us. Which is why the psalmist says, he restores my soul. Because we all carry with us these impressions of both incompleteness and brokenness and pain that reside or sit within my soul. That's, that's where it sits. And... I don't know about you, but here's how I tend to function. Out of our brokenness, out of our brokenness, we often try and restore ourselves. 
Out of our brokenness, we try to restore ourselves. And so we'll say, well, if that love was spurned, I won't love like that again. I won't be foolish enough to do that again. Or if that's what happened in that job, let me tell you right now, I'm starting my own business. I'm going to run it the way I'm going to run it, and ain't nobody ever going to fire me again. I'm going to get it done the way I want to get it done, right? And we try to restore ourselves. We try to fix ourselves. This is why, for some of us, this is why our, some of our neurotic behavior is what it is. This is why some of our, and, I, and I'm not going to pick on anybody in particular, I don't think. If this is you, it, trust me. It is not personal. <laughs> this is why, um, for some of us, like our houses have to be so clean. Why? Because I love the vacuum lines. I love to know that everything is right and done perfectly because I want to control this environment that is right here. And I pour myself into it, making sure that everything is ready, always just right. Everything is cleaned and taken care of and done right. Where does some of that come from? For some of us, it's a cry of our soul that says there is something you're trying to control in this world, and this is what you can control. This is what you can control. This is why some of us work so hard on the job. We work so hard on the job, and the job has to be perfect because if we're wrong, if we're wrong, it's going to remind us of what we already feel in our soul, that we are not perfect, that we are not complete, that we will never get it done just right. And so we work so hard, so hard, to get it all right. We give ourselves so much to it because we're trying to restore ourselves. It's a silent cry of our soul to say, you've got to be perfect. Why some of us want to make so much money. This is why some of us always want to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or have someone else fill the love that is missing or has been missing in our lives because I need someone else to fill me. And so out of our brokenness, we try to, I would argue, restore ourselves. But Let's go back to the text for a minute. Who's the one who does the restoring? Right? The last part of this line, he refreshes, he restores, he restores my soul. So if God is the one who is the one who's doing the action of the restoring, how is it that God restores? Again, we ask that question. Look at the top line with me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Second line, he leads me beside quiet waters. If that is how God does this, what does that mean? Now, some people will say, here's what it means, that the pastures are food and the waters are water. And so he gives you nourishment to go day by day, and that's what you need. And then some will translate that into saying, well, what that nourishment is, it's the word of God. And so the more you read your Bible, then the more God will be the one who refreshes your soul. Now, there may be some truth to that. However, when David wrote Psalm 23, was there a Bible? Right? The, the Bible didn't exist yet the way that we have it for sure today. In fact, you couldn't have personal devotions if you were living around the time of David the way we conceive of them today. It's not that those are wrong. I am not discouraging that. But... What did David mean when he said, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters? So there were no individual, the printing press wasn't invented yet. We didn't have this yet. It is not just, I would argue, that we need to read the Bible more, although I would encourage us to read the Bible more. But that alone can become a religious duty in which is just another attempt for us to restore ourselves. What we need to get in tune with is the God of the Bible, not just the Bible himself. He is the one who refreshes. And so this, this word is important, this verb is important of the opening line. He makes me 
lie down. Isn't that interesting? I would think that if he wants to focus on nourishment, he would say, he allows me to eat or be fed in the green pastures. This isn't about nourishment. Lying down isn't about eating the grass. It's not about nourishment as much as it is. When will the sheep lie down? After it's no longer hungry, it's been fed. And also when it's not afraid. When it's not afraid and it feels safe, it will begin to lie down. That's the picture that David is going after. I am nourished. I have more than I need and I'm not afraid. And that's the same for me and you, right? Like I don't lie down in any other place until I feel like if I'm hungry, I don't decide, let me lie down. I go eat, right? And then I lie down. And I also won't, if you invite me over to your house, I will likely not lie down on your couch when I first walk in the door. Why? Because I don't feel safe, if you will, socially. That's not safe. I won't be invited back if I do that. I do do that at home. Why? I'm at peace at home. I'm at rest. I'm in my own space, and you probably do too. So here's this picture of, he makes me lie down in green pastures. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to enter into a relationship with God where I am not afraid of anything else. I was trying to think of how to illustrate this because it's still a concept. And so I thought, um, since we're all doing such a good job of audience participation, join me for a minute as a character in a Mission Impossible movie. It's an assignment, should you be willing to accept it, that uh, we, will, we will carry on together, okay? So you're an actor or an actress in Mission Impossible. For those who don't know those movies, too bad. Um, no, not really. Um, action movie, there's something that we're trying to save, whatever it is. Let's just say we're trying to save some jewels because some of the bad people took them. Let's just assume for the sake of my illustration that they are the bad people. Let's not have a moral conversation about whether it was they're oppressed or not. And just, there's clearly bad people. Let's just say you're clearly a good person. Okay, just leave it that way. Thank you. You have successfully recovered the stolen jewels, and now we are on our way back to our home base. And on our way back, because the journey was so long, we have to stay overnight in like a little chalet in the, the whatever, the foothills of the Alps, all right? Little, little thing there. I don't know why, but just go with me. All right, there we are. We have an overnight. We got there by a snowmobile. Early in the morning, we wake up to continue our journey home. We think no one knows we're there, but we hear a deep rumbling because that's what, what, what awoke us. And we look out the window of our little chalet and we see, oh shoot, here's an avalanche, all right? Now, this is a problem, all right? This is a clear problem. And I don't know how you feel, but I'm now afraid of what's going on, all right? Now, as I begin to think, well, how do I get out of here? I'm like, I can hop on the snowmobiles and get out of here, right? Well, as soon as I'm about to do that, I happen to see, because of the way the movie goes, I happen to see um, the sun shine on something in the distance, and I realize, oh, shoot, the bad guys sent some snipers out there, and they're in between me and the avalanche, and so if I run out to get to my snowmobile, like, I'm going to actually get shot right there. So which do I fear more now, the avalanche or the immediate danger of the snipers, which really sticks me in a difficult position, right? Now, thankfully, the musical score rises up. We begin to hear the whir of helicopter blades, all right? And here come the choppers. And thankfully, Tom Cruise has arrived to rescue us all. <laughs> and so now, all of a sudden, what I had felt in terms of my fear of both a pending avalanche and the immediate danger of the snipers, all of a sudden, I know, because there's still 40 minutes left in the movie and Tom can't die, that I likely cannot die either. And so here has come like my savior to save me from the problem, right? 
So here's, here's the thing. If, thank you for joining me on my Mission Impossible movie, by the way. We are safe and alive. What I think David is saying is that if you will look up from all of your fears, you will see that God is more powerful than the real dangers that exist around you. If you will look up for a minute, yes, you will notice the pain in your life, yes, you will notice the fear that you live with. Yes, those snipers are real. Yes, if you stay there, that avalanche will bury you if the snipers don't get you first. But yes, there's also a God who is more powerful than what you are currently facing. It depends on what you look at. It depends on what will draw you out of that. When I ask this question then of how can I live my life by looking up to God, because I can, as a preacher, you can just leave it there. I don't want to leave it there. I want to go further with that. How do we live our lives by looking up? Tim Keller put it this way, and this is my um, summary of his language. He said, our greatest fears reveal our greatest love. In my illustration, when you look out and see the snipers, that's a bigger problem than the avalanche right now. Because if I leave, they're going to get me. If I'm afraid in my life now, if I look out and I see I have a money problem, I don't know if I'm going to get to my goals and so I'm going to live my life afraid of running out. What I need to be honest with is that what I love the most is I love the security that money will bring me. If I look out of my little chalet and I see the fear of my children not loving or maybe rejecting me as a parent, and that's my greatest fear, I have to admit that my greatest love is actually being accepted by them. That's what I will revolve everything around. If I look out of my little chalet and I, I see that you know, my, my fear is being rejected by people not making the team, not getting the part, not getting the minutes that I want, not performing the way that I want. I have to be honest that my greatest love is I want the approval of other people. That's my greatest love. I have to admit if I look out and I see the sniper and the sniper is my own health problem, I'm concerned about what I'm going to become later or my diagnosis is so much that I'm afraid of what I'm going to become. I have to admit that my greatest love is me and my own longevity. And I just have to be honest with that and say what I love the most, what I love the most, I love money. I mean, just name it. I mean, just name it. I love the security it brings me. I love it. I love when people accept me. I love it. I love when I perform. I love when people call my name and clap for me. I love it. Let me just be honest with it. Your greatest fear will reveal your greatest love. And this isn't just academic, it's not just philosophical, it's real, because what my soul is reaching for is green pastures. And if what I love the most can't deliver restoration, then I'm going to keep working and working and working and putting on my children and putting on money and putting on my own performance, that which it can never bear. It will never deliver to me the restoration of my soul. And so as the psalmist continues... In the, the rest of verse 3, he puts it this way. He says, he leads me, he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. 
It's almost like back in our chalet, God takes me to the rescue point and delivers me. And who gets the credit for that? At the end of the day, I don't get to tell the story of how awesome I was. I get to tell the story of how God rescued me. He led me along the right path. And who gets the credit? Him. What I'm afraid some of us do is we will sometimes use the church or religion to get here before the verse that precedes it. We will be okay to avoid God restoring my soul. To, to, we'll, we'll sometimes skip the hard conversation about what actually is filling our soul because all that we want is we want to know how to do the right thing. So God, tell me how to do the right thing. And maybe like my NBA player, I don't want an indefinite suspension because that'll make me face my things. Give me one or two and I want to lace them right back up and keep going. Like, I don't want to talk about why I pounded the wall when I was upset with my kids. I just want to move on to the next thing. And so in life, we move on, we move on, we move on. But we have the, the cry of our soul, if you will, all of these little pieces of our memory, of our love that's been broken and hurt, and, and our thoughts and our understanding of the world, all these little things, they seep out of us. They seep out of us. And it's hard to hold it all together. And what I can use sometimes is religion just to guide me along the right path. And what... David is saying in the Psalms is, God makes you lie down in green pastures. He leads you beside quiet waters. He, he, he restores your soul. He restores your soul. He restores all of those parts of you that are crying out already for love and attention. Now, let me finish with this. A couple weeks ago, I was riding my bike inside. You do not go very far when you're riding your bike indoors, by the way. So I stuck my bike on a little, what's called trainer. It locks it into place, and I literally travel nowhere, but I spin around like I'm doing something, okay? Um, and I am a part of a, uh, I connect my trainer to an online world where I can ride with other people at the same time all around the world. So it's kind of fun um, sometimes. So I decided that I would enter a little race, all right? And so about 70 people from around the world um, and, and me in my little basement riding along, going nowhere, but riding along. About 30 minutes was the, the race, and about 35 of us, you know, were away in the, the lead group to try to, to win the race. So for me, 30-minute effort on the bike at that effort, um, I am quickly breathing in and out through my mouth, like <sighs> pretty quickly over and over again, right? Toward the end, because it was required a sprint finish to actually win and get away from everybody else, um, I didn't realize that some dude had already jumped off the front and was out a couple seconds ahead of us. No, that bothered me, okay? So I decided in order to get there, I had to chase him down. And so I came from the back of the group and I went as hard as I could and I, I chased him and I did not get him. But at the end of the race, I re for the first time, I was scared because I could hardly breathe. I felt like I was suffocating. If you were in my little basement, you would have heard, <laughs> I can't even repeat it, but I was scared because I'm like, I, I can't even, I can't catch it. I can't catch my breath. It, it, like, it was horrible for me. It felt like I was suffocating. It was the first time I felt that, that bad. Now, I would argue, here's the deal. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for soul is nephesh, N-E-P-H-E-S-H, nephesh or nephesh. It literally means breath. It literally is the part of you that gives you life. And, and I would argue that for all of us, if we're willing to look into what's inside of us, that we have lost our breath sometimes. You ever feel just 
<laughs> just tired? You ever, ever just feel like, I can't catch my breath on this issue, like I've been trying, I've been trying to settle my identity, I've been trying to settle my anxieties, I've been, been trying to settle who I am as a man in this marriage, I've been trying to settle who I am as a, as a mom, I've been trying to come to terms with my identity, I've been trying to, I've been trying to, I've been trying to, and what you may or may not realize is that you've been gasping for air for a long time. Your soul is gasping for air. That's why maybe like me, you say things in your own head you wish you wouldn't say when people cut you off in traffic. Maybe like me, that's why you pound the wall in anger sometimes. Maybe that's why you work so hard. Why? Because we try to restore ourselves. That's what we do. We try to restore ourselves. I'm the good shepherd, God says. I'm going to lead you beside quiet waters. I want you to lie down in green pastures. So I want to ask you two questions to wrap it up. First of all, this is a more personal one. How's my soul? How's your breath? Are you at peace with breathing in, breathing out of your day to day? Through your pain, through your struggle, through the joy and through the challenges, are you at peace? Or is there a part of your soul that maybe you know you haven't been paying attention to that is asking you to, to breathe? To love God again. Your greatest fears will tell you your greatest love. And I want to encourage you. And if you get tired of this, you'll have to tell me sometime. I'm going to tell you again. The greatest way to love God and to find him in what I'm talking about here is to tell yourself the story of the gospel over and over and over again. Here's why. Because our sin, our sin puts us in danger. Our sin puts us in danger. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of our sin is death, and so we're in danger. But God restores us, and so when we remind ourselves of the grace of the gospel and what God has done for us, it renews my heart to love God. It renews my heart to look up and to see that he rescues me. He rescues me where I sit. He is the one who restores my soul. I don't have to perform anymore. I don't have to restore my own soul. Those things that are part of me that come out, I need to listen to them so I can let the gospel cover this. My last question is this. What can bring it, if you will, true rest? How's my soul? What can bring it true rest? If we're honest, and take a minute to be honest, will your kids really, really ever bring you true rest? Will a clean house really ever do that? Will the 10 pounds, 20 pounds you want to lose really do that? Will your performance really ever do that? What amount of money is really, really ever going to do that? How's your soul? How's your soul? Because the Good Shepherd stands here inviting us to rest not in theory, but in practice, to wake up and day after day tell myself a story of the gospel and his goodness and his goodness and his mercy and his kindness and his rescue of me. So what I want us to do this morning as we wrap up, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up now. 
Uh, worship team is going to play through a song we sang earlier, um, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Some of you are familiar with that song. Um, they're just going to play through the, it instrumentally for, for a little bit here. Um, once Ben begins to sing, you are welcome to join along with him if you'd like, or you can just let the words kind of wash over you if you'd like. Um, but I want to encourage you in this space of the quiet reflection to ask that question, how's my soul? How's my soul? And really, really, what can bring it true rest? What you're afraid of, that's what we love the most. What I'm afraid of losing, that's what I love the most. But if you have a God who's a good shepherd, who is stronger than any sniper, stronger than any avalanche, stronger than any fear that you face losing, you can find rest in your soul there.